0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week, a guest and I discuss the parashah the weekly reading from the five books of Moses, known as the Torah in Hebrew. And together we try and unpack some of the more significant aspects of the weekly reading. This week, Jews throughout the world will be uh, beginning their reading in uh, Exodus 13, chapter and verse 17, and continuing through chapter 17, verse 16. In Hebrew, the Torah portion is known as Bishalach. Let me offer a brief summary before we turn to the guest, to my guest this morning, and look at some of the sections in depth. Soon after allowing the children of Israel to depart from Egypt, Pharaoh chases after them to force their return. The Israelites find themselves in that well-known situation, trapped between the Pharaoh's army and the sea, sometimes known as the Red Sea, sometimes known as the Sea of Reeds. God tells Moses to raise his staff over the water. The staff splits to allow the Israelites to pass through, and then closes over the pursuing Egyptians. Moses and Israel sing a song known as the Song of Miriam, Shiratayang, the Song of the Sea, to praise and offer gratitude to God. In the desert, the people suffer thirst and hunger and repeatedly complain to Moses and Aaron. God miraculously sweetens the bitter waters of Marah, the Hebrew word for bitter, And later has Moses bring forth water from a rock by striking it with his staff. It is also in this parasha that we read of the manna, which rains down from heaven before dawn each morning, and the quails, which appear to the Israelite camp each evening. The children of Israel are instructed to gather a double portion of manna on Friday, as none will descend on Shabbat the divinely decreed day of rest. Some Israelites disobey this divine command and go out to gather manna on the seventh day, but find nothing there. Aaron preserves a small quantity of manna in a jar, which we're told will be testimony for future generations. The Torah portion ends in Rithidim, The people are attacked by the Amalekites, who are defeated by Moses' prayer, and an army raised by Joshua. This brief overview should give you, the listener, a uh, indication that this Torah portion is filled with interesting and challenging episodes. With me this morning is Rabbi Brooke Sussman of Freehold, New Jersey. He was the founding rabbi of Congregation Kol Am in Freehold, New Jersey. Now retired, Rabbi Sussman is a community chaplain and a volunteer on the Freehold Township Human Relations Council. He is also an adjunct professor at Brookdale Community College, where he teaches philosophy, history, and Bible as literature. It is a pleasure to welcome Rabbi Sussman as my guest this morning. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It is my pleasure to be here from south of the Canadian border. (laughs) Uh, Rabbi Sussman is known as having uh, great insight into the text, and so it's a joy to have him with us this morning. I want to begin with uh, a textually unusual section And that's Exodus 15, known as the Song of the Sea, sometimes known as Miriam's Song. And it is one of only two sections in the biblical text, which is written as a poem. Why do you think that this particular uh, section of Torah is written as a poem? And what is its greater meaning for understanding the exodus from Egypt?
1: Rabbi, as as you mentioned, the rest of the Torah written is in column form, in sections, paragraph form. But this section is... So unique. It's not just poetical. It's when you see it, basically, you are experiencing the overview of the children of Israel literally walking through the walls of water to the right, to the left of them, and they are walking on dry dry ground. Because the Hebrew is on either side of the column, and then there's white within where there's some of the hebrew that central hebrew is re- reminiscent or descriptive of the children of israel walking through that central between the two walls of water so what we are seeing in the in the text of the torah scroll itself is a bird's eye view from above of the escape from the from the descending egyptians for they are supposedly on the top of the page. The children of Israel walk through at the bottom of the page, they look behind them, the walls of water are going to then descend upon the Egyptians, the horses, the chariots, and Pharaoh himself. And so it becomes an exciting, almost mise en
0: place. So,
1: so that for you are for
0: who only have an English translation of the text, this visual may not be uh, readily apparent to you. But if, if you have an English Hebrew text, you can easily see what Rabbi Sussman is referring to. And if it interests you, I'm sure that you can access on the internet Chapter 15 of the book of Exodus in Hebrew, and you will see the columns that Rabbi Sussman refers to as pictorial representations of the splitting of the sea, and words in the middle that represent the Israelites crossing and the Egyptians following. Thank you. That's very helpful to our listeners. But it must in be fact, more. In, <laughs> in fact, I was going to
1: say, in the center of the entirety comes those four words: aronai." Who is like you among the gods, O oh, Vav O God of
0: Israel? Verse eleven behaves, of chapter fifteen. Uh, continue, yes. please. I just want to let our listeners who know who have the text how they can follow this. This
1: essentially is where the children of Israel learn the name of an otherwise unknown deity who is their God, who had been the God of slaves and now the God of their
0: liberation. So are you suggesting that this um, uh, four-letter Hebrew term, yud heh vav which is often referred in... Uh, English as Jehovah or Yahweh is a name for God that the Israelites had not grown up with during their uh, enslavement for 430 years? They didn't even know it before that. Everything is contextual.
1: As you mentioned, I teach the Bible as literature to adults. And so the parasha, the Torah portion, as impressive as it is and meaningful as it is, must be seen in context. So set the scene for us. The mise-en-scene, we have early on in the Bible, Abraham is called by an unknown voice, telling him to leave town and go to a place that this unknown, untested deity will show him. Where does he go? He goes to Hamakom, the place Temple Mount. And there he's given a mission. He is going to become a goy gadol, a great nation, a great people. He doesn't know the name of this deity yet, nor will his son, nor will his grandson, nor will 430 years of the children of Israel sojourn as slaves in Egypt. They do not recognize, they do not know the name of this deity. This deity is an Elohim, One of the gods, Elohim being a plural noun, translated in the Bible as God. It becomes singular through this story. This becomes Exodus 15, the essence of monotheism. Prior to that, we've we've dealt with polytheism. There's polytheism, there's monotheism, and then there's what's known as monolatry. Monolatry recognizes that there are many deities, many Elohim, many Elohim gods, but for me and my people, there's only one. But we don't know who this one God is. He is going to be introduced to Moses. When Moses, who is that foundling, that adopted individual brought up by Bat Yam, the daughter of Pharaoh, to become a member of Pharaoh's own household and discovers his own lineage, he runs away. He comes to a mountain and he sees a bush burning yet being consumed by the fire and a voice comes out and he is now introduced to the name of this deity. And the name is descriptive of the personality. This deity
0: So this is Exodus three, I believe. Uh, Yes, it is. uh, Verse 13 through 18, in which, uh, as you're suggesting, uh, Moses uh, confronts a bush that burns but is not consumed. And in his first interaction with the deity, uh, Moses says, I'm going to quote, When I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to me, to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Yeah, who, who sent you? What's this guy's, what's this God's name? Right, no, and this
1: no calling is, this, card at this point. Uh, and, the, and the name that you referenced, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jehovah, is known as the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Yud, He, Vov, He, which truly is, And here, I come back to my 10th grade in high school. It is the third masculine singular future tense of the to be verb. It's not the name of God. It describes who that God is. The name of this deity is he will be or he will always be, which is also a definition of perfection, unchanging. Also, in, introduced in, in a verse earlier, Eheya, Asher eh-eh, often translated, I am whom I am, but that's not the proper Hebrew. It's, I will become whom I will be.
0: And so and the so we are Israelites are introduced by Moses to a very different kind of deity than Pharaoh. Absolutely. And in fact, if we take the... Uh, Torah text at face value, the only deity the Israelites have known during their enslavement is the human representation uh, of Pharaoh, known as the ultimate uh, in the pantheon of the Egyptian deities, uh, who was
1: known as who was known as Ramses, right. which becomes very important because in Egyptian language the term Masas means son of, just as in Hebrew the word ben means son of. So I am Baruch ben Yisrael, I am Baruch, the son of my father Israel. Ramses is son of Ra, the sun God, which makes Moses' name even more important because he has no lineage. He is known as Masas, Moses, Moshe, essentially son of no one he he becomes that discoverer so he becomes the son of the god of israel the son of so it be, this becomes so important for essentially the three abrahamic religions of judaism christianity and islam because this deity who was going to become the god is god for the jews the
0: father for the trinitarians and allah for, for the Muslims and takes on a singular identity in the face of uh, monolatry or polytheism. And in our particular portion, as you pointed out, we have this arunai. who is like you among all the gods, as you indicated, this conflict. Between Pharaoh coming through the middle of the Red Sea, leading his army, um, and is not defeated by the Israelites. And in fact, the text is very clear the Israelites on the other side of the water, and they. Scared to death. Right. uh, (laughs) And still waiting to see what will happen, which may be why, as soon as they are on the other side, they begin. To suggest that it was better back in Egypt, where they had surety, um, even though their description of slavery doesn't fit with our knowledge of any kind of slavery, that there would be surety of food and surety of housing and uh, a a great pension plan. plan. These, These people
1: are so very human. They have been in bondage for 430 years. And the first thing they do after absolute miraculous manumission, they gripe. We had garlic in, in, in Egypt. Everything was good. And that's the beauty. I'm going to suggest there are, according to the text, 10 plagues. I'm going to suggest to you, the listeners, that there is an 11th plague. And that 11th plague is the death of Pharaoh. He he no long, he lost his, his ability to choose. His entire being was taken over by this Yahweh, besting Ra, the proof, therefore, that Ra was no longer the sun god, the greatest god of all, by being defined by the mightiest nation in the world, the then known world, the Egyptians. This god of the slaves has complete control over Pharaoh and forces Pharaoh into the midst of the Yam Suf, the Red Sea, to be destroyed, thereby making that proof that this God of Israel is not just one of the gods, but he is the
0: God. And so what you're suggesting for our listeners is that one might read the plagues, certainly nine of them, uh as pharaoh being unwilling to seed that there is a power greater than he that there's uh, see, he sees himself as the ultimate god in his universe how could there be another god that could defeat him um and that the only plague that seems to have an emotional impact is the one in which the killing of the firstborn occurs. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that this is not a battle
1: between Moses and Ramses. This is a cosmic battle between Ra and Yahweh. That Ra gave Ramses the power of his own being to offset all of the plagues by his heart to Defined as Egyptian magicians. They aren't magicians. They're priests. They're representatives of Ra for the Pharaoh. He loses. There's a nuance in the Hebrew where he no longer loses, has control over his choices. Once we get into the fifth of the plagues, the tenth plague, as you noted, becomes the one where he goes, Gavalt, oi, look what I've lost. And then he himself, that's why I suggest it is the 11th plague, the unspoken one, the unknown one, because it's now, that is where the God of Israel takes no prisoners among those who abuse his people, nor does he take
0: prisoners among any of the other presumed deities. And so as you present this to our listeners, and as we discuss it this morning, it almost appears as if the text requires Pharaoh's death. Yes. That Pharaoh, like the other plagues, has to be consumed by the power of Yahweh before the Israelites can sing Mi Hamocha Be'elim Adonai. Who is like you among all of those gods? And the
1: response would be? No one loch lamva ed yave is sovereign over all.
0: Uh so as we uh proceed with this parasha, uh we have this strange notion of uh Yahweh's ascendancy to the leadership of all gods in the universe, why then does the parasha conclude with this story of the Amalekites uh, showing up to challenge uh, Yahweh's chosen people?
1: That's going to become truly an essential discussion for another time but it culminates in the book of Esther because we ask the question why is Esther in this canon it makes no sense unless we recognize that Haman was an Agagite who was an Amalekite and when the God of Israel says destroy them blot them out from the face of the earth it takes that much time for their blotting out And the conclusion of the book of of Esther is the destruction of all of Haman's sons as well as all of those who sprang from the Amalekites. And so it's only in the book of Esther that we get the understanding of why the story of Amalek, and why that eternal hatred and enmity between the children of Israel and the children of Amalek.
0: So you're right; it takes us in a very. Uh, I thought I was. <laughs> uh, it takes us in a very different direction. And I apologize to my listeners if, uh, in speaking about the book of Esther, which serves as the basis of the Jewish festival of Purim, we have lost you. So let's return to Bishalat. Let me, let me, make, let me make this suggestion to, so that people can better understand. If we truly
1: look at the Bible as a piece of literature rather than a book of religion, then we can even suggest that it likens itself to something that's written, a mystery story written by Agatha Christie or Dashiell Hammett. It's a mystery story and we are given clues. We've got to find out why something happens. What are the clues that lead us to understand that? And so in my referencing Esther, it's, that becomes the conclusion. The butler did it in the book of Esther. But the entirety of it, look. If we look at the entirety of the text, we are getting hints and clues as to who is going to win, who is going to lose, why? Why is this one in ascendancy? Why is that one in, in, in being diminished?
0: So, in that sense, Bishallah is really the beginning. Of this cosmic battle between Yudhe Vovhe Adonai um, and all other gods. As the Israelites will proceed through the desert, they will confront many different challenges, always relying on the power and strength of Yudhavha to deliver them. He is. Well, you're going to to be
1: having one of our colleagues on in a week or two dealing with the Ten Commandments. You cannot have the Ten Commandments without B'Shalach because it would make no sense because that first commandment among the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other Elohim other than me. That statement makes no sense until we have gone through the, the, the Red Sea, onto dry land, onto freedom. And that freedom is given to us by Yahweh.
0: This notion that um, y- there are none like you, God, y- none like you, Yahweh, among the pantheon of Elohims, is yes. uh, anglicizing the Hebrew. So I want to switch gears in the few minutes that are left to us and ask you something that stands out in uh, very much in the beginning books of Exodus. Uh, Often people suggest that the Torah is a patriarchal text, and that uh, women have a, a secondary and tertiary role. But you know as a student of Torah that in the first few chapters of Exodus, we find women taking a significant role in terms of being the midwives, and Moses' his sister saving him, and the daughter of Pharaoh saving Moses, and then the daughter of the Midianite priest, all playing significant roles. But in this chapter 15, we have this wonderful piece of poetry, and at the end of it, our readers will find that unusual statement that is, then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her and danced. And Miriam chanted for her, them, I, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. In your experience uh, teaching the Torah, how do we account for the fact that women, at least up until chapter 15 in the Torah, uh, in the book of Exodus, play such a significant role? We may not see that role continue for the rest of the Torah. Well, I, I then go back, and I hate
1: going back and forth within the text, but we can even go back into Genesis. The story of uh, Jacob and Rebecca and their two and the twins, and that supposed pulling the wool over old Dad's eyes by the rightful heir Esau. It was his mother. It was Rivka Rebecca, who really insisted that the birthright be given to Jacob. Not Not to his brother Esau, so it's 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 the women who have preserved it's the women who have forced the men to preserve the covenant with that eventual soon to be known God of Israel, because the boys would
0: would have given up, so here Miriam is called a prophetess. Uh, For the first time, the term is used to describe somebody in uh, the Torah. There's nobody else who's called a prophet at this point in the text. Um, And so you're suggesting that Miriam, like other uh, women in the Torah, have this responsibility of... uh, uh, pushing the limits of what the men might have been willing to uh, accept. The, the men were willing to go back. In fact, when you get to the story
1: of the golden calf, the Hebrew becomes absolutely necessary. You ask, where did the gold come from uh, to make the golden calf? And the Hebrew deals with the masculine ending. Because now we have to find out where are we going to get the gold to make the holy ark, the Arona Kodesh. It had to be somewhere. And so the rabbis tell us it's the men who were willing to make the Egal Maseicha, the golden calf, giving up the gold. Because they'll do, they go along to get along guys. But it's the women who refuse to give it up.
0: Well, I think we're going to have to uh, interrupt this fascinating discourse on the Torah portion. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Brooke Sussman of Freehold, New Jersey, founding rabbi of Kol Am uh, Congregation. Uh, And thank you, my listeners, for joining us for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning on uh, chri.ca website or on iTunes. Shalom and have a good day.